Well, as I get started this morning, I want to begin by giving you a number. Uh, So you ready? Here's the number. 613. 613. So if you're writing notes, go ahead and jot that down. 613-613. Now, now that number probably doesn't mean anything to you this morning. It doesn't mean much to you this morning. But if you were a first century Jew, you would know this number, 613. You'd know it very well. You probably wouldn't need to write it down because there'd be little to no chance of you forgetting this number. You see, if you were a first century Jew, a Jew living in the days of Jesus and a Jew who, who desired to be pleasing to God, this number, 613, would be very important to you. And it would be important to you because according to the rabbis and the scribes, so the experts and the teachers in the Jewish law, this number, 613, was the number of commandments that God had called you to obey. The rabbis and the scribes taught that there were 613 laws, 613 precepts or commandments about which every Jew needed to be mindful every moment of every day. Now, how had these rabbis and scribes come up with this number, 613? Well, they had read through the Old Testament books, books like uh, Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy, and they made a list of the laws that they found there, but that wasn't enough. They then took their interpretations of the law, interpretations that over time began to be seen as laws themselves, and they added those to the list, and they came up with this list of 613 commandments. But it wasn't just happenstance. It wasn't just accident that they arrived at this particular number. You see, they viewed the number 613 as an important number, and they viewed it as an important number because that was how many letters, I'm not making this up, that was how many letters there were in the Decalogue. In the Ten Commandments. If you were to look at the the Ten Commandments in the Hebrew, you would find 613 letters. So they decided that there should be a commandment for every letter in the Big Ten, in the the Ten Commandments. Again, I'm not making this up. So 613. 613 commandments that a godly Jew, according to them, needed to follow. But it wasn't just as... I say simple, but it's not really simple. But it wasn't just as simple as giving everybody a list of 613 commandments. Uh, They had, as men will often do, they had actually created a complicated system with these 613. First, they had divided the 613 into positive and negative commandments. So there were 248 positive commandments on the list. So 240 things that you needed to make sure you were doing. And then there were 365 prohibitions on the list. So 365 things you needed to make sure you weren't doing. 365. So one for every day of the year. That'd be kind of nice. We probably had a do not do calendar of the day that they could pull through. (laughs) Anyways. But they divide it. Positive and negative. But not only did they divide this list that way into positive and negative, but they also had levels in in this list of 613. According to Jewish historians, the rabbis differentiated between what they called heavy and light commandments. So the light commandments were those that made less demands on a person's will or a person's possessions, but the heavy or weighty commandments were to be seen as life's uncompromising essentials. But here's the thing. There wasn't an agreement between the scribes and the rabbis and all these teachers about which commandments belonged on the light list and which belonged on the heavy list. They actually had some pretty heated debates about where these commandments fell on the list. And all of this, the 613, as you can imagine, made for a pretty complicated and confusing life for a first century Jew. Made for a pretty complicated and confusing life. Uh, They lived burdened by the 613, by this long list of do's and don'ts over which their their leaders and their teachers argued and debated. Just just for a moment, try to imagine yourself in their shoes, in their sandals. 
Imagine desiring to live a life pleasing to God and your creator, to your creator and your God, but feeling that you were constantly overwhelmed, constantly confused about what that life was supposed to look like. Imagine being in their situation. Imagine trying to keep clear in your mind 613. Okay, if you have a list of five things, and guys, you can probably relate to this. If you have a list of five things that your wife says, go to the grocery store and get. If you're like me, you're texting or calling multiple times through that trip going, okay, what was I supposed to get? What was I supposed to get? But that's five or ten things, right? 613, 613, trying to make sure that you were giving proper weight and time to each of the things you were supposed to do, and then making sure you were avoiding all the things you weren't supposed to do. So it seems like it would be a pretty frustrating and exhausting situation, wouldn't it? Pretty frustrating and exhausting. And I imagine that for many of them, it was. It was a life of frustration. It probably led many of them to spiritual burnout or just just plain apathy about obedience in general. Like, I can't keep them all, so why keep any of them? Why keep any of them? With this approach, with the 613, the Jews had created an overcomplicated system that was overwhelming the people of God, creating frustration, discouragement, and exhaustion. And this 613 is the background of the text of the question that we're going to look at this morning. So take your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, and go over to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. And again, the 613 is the background of this text, this question we're going to look at. So the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, and our text for this morning is chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. And we'll get through most of it, some of it today. We'll finish it up next week. But that's what we're going to look at today, verses 28 to 34. So look at how the text begins. Look at the first verse. And one of the scribes, came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, speaking of Jesus, that he answered them while asked him, what? Which, what? Commandment is the most important of all. So you see that question there? Which, what? Commandment. Is everybody there in the text? I hope so. (laughs) Which commandment is the most important of all? That question, I want you to understand, that question is driven by the 613. Which commandment is what? Most important of all. That question is driven by the 613. But before we get into discussing this question and really digging into it, let's just take a moment, and I just want to give you a sense of the context here uh, in which this question is asked. Mark tells us here in verse 28 that one of the scribes, so one of the experts in the law, came up, and what does the text say? Heard them doing what? Disputing, arguing with one another. Now, if you remember in this section of Mark, Jesus is in the midst of a series of debates that are taking place in the temple. He has been debating with leadership from the Sanhedrin. Again, that was Israel's ruling council. So he's debating with these representatives from the Sanhedrin. That takes place in chapter 11. And then the Pharisees and the Herodians come together and they start this debate over taxation. And that's in chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. And then the last time we were together in Mark's gospel, we examined a theological debate that Jesus had with the Sadducees. And you see that in verses 18 to 27. So here we find Jesus in the midst of these series of debates, all these debates taking place in the temple, debates between Jesus and the religious leaders, the religious elite of Israel. And Mark tells us that this scribe has been observing all of this. He's been watching all of this. But you need to note that this scribe is a very different figure than those who have previously approached Jesus in this series of debates. Up to this point in these debates, 
we've seen hostile groups. You know, you had the Sanhedrin, you had the Pharisees and the Herodians, you had the Sadducees, these hostile groups coming up to Jesus, and they're trying to trick him and trap him by their debates. But here we don't find a group, do we? We find one guy, a solitary figure, who comes up, and he actually has a very positive discussion with Jesus. Mark shows us that this scribe's question actually arises from honest observations of Jesus. Look again at verse 28. There's this series of of participles, coming, hearing, seeing. And those participles show us that that Mark is telling us here, this, this guy hasn't come on the attack. He's come to do what? He's watching what's going on. He's first come to observe. And observing Jesus, and observing that Jesus did what? Answered well, then what does he do? Then he asks this question. Then he asks this question. And in what follows, we see a very positive exchange with Jesus. Um, in verses 29 to 31, Jesus answers the man's question. We'll look at that in detail in a moment. But then the scribe says back to Jesus, look at verse 32. He says what? You are? You're right. You're right, teacher. Another way to translate that little phrase is, well said, teacher. Or excellent response, teacher. Or even you could translate it as, that was beautiful, teacher. So what we see is a positive response to Jesus from this scribe. And when it comes to Jesus' interactions in the Gospels with scribes, this response is rare. I mean, it's unique. Commentator James Brooks explains that in verse 32, that is the only place, listen to this, that is the only place in all four Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's the only place in all four Gospels where a scribe is described as being favorably disposed towards Jesus. The only place in all four Gospels. What we're used to seeing is what? Scribes do what with Jesus? Oppose Jesus, challenge Jesus, argue with Jesus, accuse Jesus. But here we see one respond positively to Jesus. So this guy is different. We're not used to this. And Jesus' response to him is also different. Look at verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he, the scribe, and there is an exchange between Jesus and this scribe. That we'll, again, we'll look at that more later. But when he saw that the scribe answered wisely, Jesus said to him, what? Yeah, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And again, this too is unique in the Gospels. This is the only place where Jesus commends a scribe in any of the four Gospels. So all that to say, this text has a different tone to it than the other debates that we've been looking at, the other debates in this section. The scribe has come to Jesus with no, no ill will. He's not trying to trick or trap Jesus. He is not like the others. And unlike the others, he has come to Jesus with, a, with an honest and an important question. Look again at verse 28. Which commandment is the most important of all? Now again, you have to hear that question in the context of this 613. That's the background. You see, what the scribe is after is really, really cutting through the 613. He's looking for clarity. He's looking for simplicity. The scribe, this expert in the law, wants to know what's really important. What is really important? He, he wants to know, we can put it this way, he wants to know what the North Star is. What, what's the plumb line? What's the, the guiding point that's going to help him navigate and pilot through all of the complexities and difficulties and situations of life? What does God truly desire of us? That's really the question. That's the question. And brothers and sisters, such a question should get our attention. Such a question should get our attention. What is the most important? You ever ask that question? 
What is the most important? What does God desire of us, his creation? When I began studying this text a few weeks ago, the scribe's question just, it just jumped out at me. And, and as I began to think about it, it really, it really was weighing on me for two reasons. I'll share these reasons with you, and let's just see if they, these reasons resonate with you. First, it jumped out to me because just like the Jews with their 613, we too have a tendency to overcomplicate our lives. Amen? We have a tendency to overcomplicate our lives. We have this tendency to create mental checklists of do's and don'ts, right? These mental checklists by which we daily, probably moment by moment, measure our lives. Now, now maybe your list doesn't have 613 commandments on it. Maybe your list is a little smaller. My guess is that all of us have, have this mental checklist, these unwritten rules running through our minds, these lists by which we are evaluating and measuring our lives. Now, what's on our lists? Probably differs person to person, right? But on our list, we might find categories similar to the Jewish 613. We probably all have our do list and our don't list, right? We probably all have our do and our don't list. We, we have our heavy, essential items. These are the essentials. And then we have our less important commands. Just like the Jews, we have probably have a mental checklist of what to eat, what not to eat, right? What to wear, what not to wear. Where to go, where not to go. Who to hang out with, who to avoid. We have our lists of sins and virtues. And by our mental checklist, our personal 613, we measure ourselves and we measure the success of our lives, probably, if not moment by moment, at least daily, right? We're measuring ourselves. And, and see if this resonates with you. We can become slaves of our lists, can't we? Amen? We can become slaves of our lists. Our, our emotional and mental well-being oftentimes is wrapped up in, in those unwritten rules, in that mental checklist. It's wrapped up in the success or the failure of, our, of obeying those rules on that checklist. You see, it often isn't just a mental checklist of do's and don'ts. It can too often become our mental list of our failures, right? Our list of our failures. We have this list of all the things we need to do to be the spouse we're supposed to be and to be the parent we're supposed to be and to be the son or the daughter we're supposed to be or to be the employer or the employee we're supposed to be or to be the friend we're supposed to be or the neighbor we're supposed to be and on and on and on and on it goes. And just like the 613, it overwhelms us. We, we think through our list and it often shouts to us of our failures. It shouts to us of our failures. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody else ever been there? Anybody want to say amen to that one? You know? It, it becomes this mental checklist of all the ways I'm failing. I'm not measuring up. And with all of the failures, with wave after wave of do this and don't do that, we, just like the Jews with their 613, can end up burnt out and frustrated. You see, brothers and sisters, just like those first century Jews, we are prone to overcomplicate our lives. Amen? Prone to overcomplicate our lives. We are prone to overwhelm ourselves with mental to-do lists that exhaust us, that frustrate us, that depress us, and can lead to us burning out or, or just becoming apathetic about everything. So when I hear this scribe's question, what is the most important? What's the heart? What cuts through the list and stands as supreme? That question gets my attention, and it should yours as well. 
should get our attention. But it doesn't just get my attention because of the nature of the question. It also gets my attention because of the person answering the question. Take a moment, really think about this. Here is a man asking this question of who? Yeah, of Jesus. Here he is, he's asking Jesus what is most important. And again, as I was reading through this, man, that grabbed my attention. Okay, what is the most important and who's answering that? Jesus, that should get our attention. I mean, think about this. If you had one person, you only get one person, that you could ask this question, who else would you ask? I mean, who's, who are you moving up above him on the list, right? I mean, here he is, the son of God, the word of God incarnate. And he is weighing in on what God most desires of us. Here is the one wiser than Solomon, the one with a heart truer than David, a mind more profound than the apostle Paul. Here is the son of God filled with the spirit of God. And he is going to tell us what is the most important commandment of God. That demands our attention. Amen. That demands our attention. This is an essential question answered by none other than Jesus Christ himself. And look at the answer that he gives. Look at verses 29 to 31. Jesus answered. Again, the question, what commandment is the most important of all? What cuts through? What, what, is, what is the essential? Verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Brothers and sisters, here is wisdom like a knife. Wisdom like a knife. Jesus cuts right through. All of our do's and don'ts. He cuts right through the Jewish 6.13. He cuts right through all of the imperatives of Scripture itself and gets right to the very heart of what God desires of us. And what is the heart? What's the key term here in what Jesus says? Look at the text. What's the key term? What is it? One word. There you go. Love. Love. Jesus says the most important is you shall what? Love. You shall love. You shall love the Lord your God. And here's the second. You shall what? Love your neighbor. You shall love the Lord your God, and you shall love your neighbor. In response to the scribe's honest and great question, Jesus explains here clearly and profoundly the essence of what God desires of us. Love. Love. Again, Jesus' wisdom just cuts right through our mental checklist, doesn't it? It just cuts right through. What does God desire of us? What is the most important? Love. Love. But when we say that, especially in our culture, um, it needs some clarification, right? It needs some clarification because especially in this culture, love can mean so many strange and different things, right? When people hear that word, all kinds of ideas come into their minds, right? Um, There is a cultural confusion, I think, about this, this idea of love. Uh, love is off, this culture often equates love with, with romance or lust or on again, off again emotions or a what have you done for me lately approach to relationships. There's so much confusion about this idea, this word love. So because of that, I believe I would not be doing a good job as your pastor this morning if I just left it at 
love. We need to dive into this further and really explore what Jesus says here, really unpack what it, mean, what it means when he tells the scribe the most important commandment is you shall love. So let's begin to unpack this. First, let me point out that in this text, Jesus speaks of what I'll call a two-directional love. Two-directional love. He is describing both a, a vertical love and, and a horizontal love. And where does he start? He starts with the vertical love, right? Starts with the vertical. Jesus says that God desires of us that we have an all-consuming love for God. An all-consuming love for God. We are to be lovers of God. Jesus says the most important commandment is, verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. So our love for God is to be all-consuming, is to be an all-encompassing love. And brothers and sisters, that's what God deserves. Amen? That's what God deserves. And that's what we were created for. That's what we were created for. We were created to find our delight in loving the God who made us. Amen? That's what we were created for. Loving him with our entire being. That's the vertical direction of this love that Jesus talks about. But Jesus also mentions a, a horizontal direction. As those who love God, we are also called to love those created in the image of God, right? God desires of us a selfless love for others. In verse 31, Jesus says, the second greatest commandment is this, you shall love your neighbor, how? As who? As yourself. That means we treat others the way we lovingly treat ourselves. Um, They are not to be seen as beneath us, things to be used by us. They are to be seen as on par with us. We are to afford them the same care, the same kindness, the same grace that we afford ourselves. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, both of these loves that Jesus describes here, this vertical and this horizontal love, they're huge concepts. And and I believe it will truly bless us to to dive into them and, and explore them. So in the remainder of our time this morning and then all of next Sunday in that message, I want us to really dive into understanding this two-directional love. I want us to really immerse ourselves in that which, again, according to Jesus, is the most important. That which is the most important. So in our time remaining this morning, let's begin by talking about this, this all-consuming love for God, this vertical love. And the first thing that I want to point out here when we talk about this is that Jesus' answer to the scribe, it's actually a quotation. It's a quotation from the Old Testament. In verses 29 and 30, Jesus is reciting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And what he's doing here is he's answering the scribe with probably the most familiar Old Testament passage in first century Judaism. I mean, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5 was kind of like their John 3, 16. I mean, this was their most familiar passage. Everybody, every Jew knew this passage. And they knew it simply by the title, the Shema, the Shema. Go ahead, take your Bibles and turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And as you're turning there, let me explain why they called this passage that, why they called it the Shema. They gave it that, the title, the Shema, because the first word in Hebrew of Deuteronomy 6.4 is this word Shema, this word that means hear. So they took the first word and they made that the title of this passage. So if you're there, now Deuteronomy chapter 6, look at verse 4, and what's the first word? It's the first word, hear. Okay, so here, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, these verses, these two verses, the Shema, 
was for the first century Jew, um, what you might call an essential confession. It, it was a creed that was repeated by pious Jews at least twice a day. So morning and evening, they would recite, at least morning and evening, they would recite this text. They would recite this text that reminded them of who God is and what he required of them. And as you look at this text, it's really such a beautiful text. It's such a clear and powerful summary of the law. Now here in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is speaking with the nation of Israel. And and the book itself is really his last word to them. His last word before he is going to die and they're going to go into the promised land. Now if you remember, um, the people that he's speaking to are the sons and daughters of the Exodus generation. So, so their parents, remember they, they got right up there to the edge of the promised land. They doubted God. They said, let's go back to Egypt. God said, you're going to go wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So they did that. They died out. And now here's their grown sons and daughters getting ready to enter into the promised land and enjoy God's blessings. But before they enter, Moses preaches to them one last time. And this text, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, these verses cited by Jesus to this scribe, that's really a summary of the whole of Moses' teaching in this, this book, Deuteronomy, that really is one long sermon. This is really the summary of it. And look at how the Shema begins. Look again at verse 4. Notice it doesn't start with loving God, does it? What does it start with? Here, but what does it start with? Think about what it starts with. It starts with knowing God, Right? Before it talks about loving God, it starts with knowing God. There's a description of God, right? That's how it begins. And that's just so important for us to understand. How can you love someone you don't know? How can you love someone you don't know? You can't. So the Shema begins with a description of God. It describes God first, think about this, as a personal God. A personal God. He he is not unconnected or separated from his people. He is in relationship with him. He is the Lord. What does it say? Our God. Not the Lord, the God. Says the Lord, our God. Think about what that would have meant to these people to whom Moses is preaching. First, they would have heard the personal name for God. If you're looking at the text there, behind that English word, Lord, and it probably has small caps or something like that, um, behind that is the Hebrew word, Yahweh, the, the personal name for God. The Lord, our God. Yahweh, our God. And you remember, God had revealed that name to Moses at the burning bush. Remember that scene? Moses is going to be sent back to to Egypt, right, to deliver the people. And he says, if I'm going to go to them, they're going to ask me, who sent sent me? And, And what should I say? What's your name? And you remember what God says? Here's my name. I am that I am. Yahweh. The I am. The, the all-sufficient, the ever-present one. And Moses says to these people, that's our God. That's our God. This one is our God. He is our God, the creator God. I mean, you need to hear that as the background of this statement. Moses' sermon here preached, the sermon that is Deuteronomy, it wasn't preached in isolation. Moses had taught these people about Yahweh. He had taught them that Yahweh is the creator of everything. Sometimes we lose sight of this, but, but Moses wrote the book of Genesis, right? And who did he write it to? We just think it was just there, right? But he wrote it to who? He wrote it to these people, right? They were the, they were the first recipients of the book of Genesis. It was written for these people. And in the book of Genesis, we discover what? How does it open? Who's, who made everything? 
Yeah, Yahweh is the creator God. And so when Moses says to them here in Deuteronomy, the Lord our God, they were hearing the Lord our God, Yahweh, who made us and everything else. And they were also hearing the Lord our God, the God who covenanted with our forefathers. Again, Moses had taught them about this, right? He had unfolded for them again in the pages of Genesis that Yahweh, the creator God, had condescended and entered into a covenant, a loving, gracious agreement with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And he had covenanted to be their God and to care for them and to bless them and to love them and just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No, all of their descendants. For how long? For a couple weeks? (laughs) No, forever, forever. And so these people hearing this sermon from Moses knew this. Yahweh, our creator. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. Moses had taught them this. They knew that Moses was speaking about their creator. They knew that Moses was speaking about the covenant-keeping God. And they also knew that Moses was speaking about the God who had redeemed them. The God who had redeemed them. Again, their parents lived through what? The Exodus, right? Their parents lived through the Exodus. Their parents were born into what? Slavery and bondage. Was it an easy life back there in Egypt? Go read through those early chapters of the book of Exodus. It was not an easy life at all. They were born into that. But God, by his might and because of his covenant, he did what? He redeemed them. He rescued them through the plagues, through the Passover, through the parting of the Red Sea. He had freed them from their bondage. He had redeemed them. And they all knew that story very well. And they also knew very well that Yahweh was the God who had sustained them. Yahweh was the God who had sustained them. Before you get to the book of Deuteronomy, what book comes before that? You've got to go through the book of Numbers, right? Through the dark days of the book of Numbers. And as you read through the book of Numbers, what do you discover? You, just, you find there that, that in spite of Israel's rebellion, I mean, boy, it's like page after page after page after page of rebellion. In spite of their rebellion, in spite of their faithfulness, God sustained them. God sustained them. He cared for them 40 years, day in and day out. He was their life in the wilderness. How long do you think they would have lasted out there without God? Yeah, five minutes, maybe. He was their life. He sustained them. So I bring all that up to say, that is all packed into this little phrase, the Lord our God. That's the way they would have heard this. Moses is speaking to these people who knew God personally. He is talking to them about the God who has revealed himself personally as the creating, the covenant-keeping, the redeeming and sustaining God of this people. He is talking about the Lord, Yahweh, our God, our God. And he says to them, the Lord, our God, the Lord is what? One, one. It's beautiful here. Moses is continuing to teach these people about Yahweh. Now, now this is a rich statement here. The Lord is one. On one level, Moses is proclaiming that Yahweh is an undivided God. Moses is teaching these people that God is unified in his purpose, in his plan, and in his nature. This is so important for us to realize. There there isn't contrary characteristics in the true and living God. Every aspect, this is so beautiful when you take time to really think about it, every aspect of his character, of his nature, is in perfect harmony. His mercy is not in conflict with his justice. He's not 
wishy-washy, divided. I don't know if I'm going this way or that way. His wrath isn't contrary to his love. There is perfect harmony, perfect unity in the nature of God. And this is also true of the persons of the Godhead. In the fullness of the revelation of God, when you look at the fullness of Scripture, we see the richness, really, of this statement made here. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are one. One in nature and one in purpose. That means the Son isn't in competition with the Father. Aren't you glad about that? The Son isn't in competition with the Father. The Spirit isn't less glorious than the Son. They are one. Three persons, one in nature and one in purpose. So, so by the statement, Moses is teaching these people the unity of God. The unity of God. He is one. But he's also teaching them about the uniqueness of God. The word here, one, it doesn't just speak of being undivided. It also speaks of being unique, like one of a kind. So Moses is saying to these people, there is no one. There's no one like Yahweh. There's no one like our God. He is the one and only God. Yahweh isn't one among many. He is the one and only true God. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one, undivided and unique. And here's the thing. Such a God, one who is undivided, the one and only, the creating, the covenant-keeping, the redeeming and sustaining God, is worthy of the love of his people. Such a God is worthy of the love of his people. Amen? And, and, and that's, I want you to understand, that's the way this text works. That's the way the Shema works. First, God is revealed, then the right response is called for. Does that make sense? First, God is revealed, then the right response is called for. The right response is shown. Love. Again, how can you love someone you don't know? But once you know him, here's the thing. Once you know him, once you have seen him as your creator, as your redeemer, as your sustainer, as the one and only God, the only right and true response is what? Love. Love. That's the only right and true response. But in a sense, we still haven't answered our question, right? What is this love that Moses speaks of? What is it? Is Moses calling these people simply to have some warm emotions towards God? Is he telling them, you know, just try to have some warm fuzzies, get a rumbly tummy for God? I mean, what is he talking about here? He's not talking about warm fuzzies and a rumbly tummy. Moses is calling these people to action. He's not talking as much about feelings, but action. He's talking about commitment. It is about devotion. Devotion. That is the love that Moses speaks of. It's really here, if you understand this, it's really here a call to reciprocate the love that God has shown for them. God, in his covenant faithfulness, loves his people. He loves his people. And that doesn't mean he just has warm feelings for them, right? Aren't you glad it's not just that? I have some warm feelings for you guys. Aren't you glad it's not that? What does it mean? It means he is devoted to us. Amen? Devoted to you. It means God is for his people. He protects us. Amen? He cherishes us. He guides us. He rescues us. He provides for us. And he will never abandon us. That is his love, his covenant faithfulness to his people. And our love for him is to be like that. He is devoted to us, and we are called to be devoted to him. Now, our devotion expresses itself differently. We don't need to provide for him, right? We don't need to rescue him, right? 
So when it comes to God's devotion for us, it's expressed in saving us and caring for us. And our devotion to him is shown through our worship, our obedience of him. We're to give him the honor and the glory that is due him. That's our devotion. Our devotion looks like keeping his commandments. Not, not so we can try, we want to try to make him happy or we're going to do this out of ritual. Or we're going to do this grudgingly. But we do it as an expression of a heart that has been captivated by his love for us. Amen? I mean, our, our obedience is not supposed to be rote, ritual, drudgery. Amen? And it rises up from this devotion to God. Now, as I say that, I want to make sure I'm clear on this. I'm not saying that this love is to be devoid of feelings altogether. God has created us as emotional beings, amen? God has created us as emotional beings. And and when the truth of God joyfully overwhelms our minds, guess what happens? It inflames our affections, amen? Amen? It inflames our affections. But my point is simply here that the love of God, the love that God calls us to, is not just a feeling. Okay? It is an action. It is devotion. It is expressed through our worship and obedience of God. And that's why back in the Mark text, the word that Jesus uses there for love, you shall love the Lord your God, the type of love that he talks about is agape love. That's the term that he uses. Pastor John MacArthur describes agape love this way. He says it's the love of intelligence. That doesn't mean we love intelligence, but it's an intelligent love. It's the love of the will, the love of purpose, the love of choice, the love of sacrifice. And listen to this, the love of obedience. It's love expressed through obedience. Agape is not the love of attraction or lust. It is the love of action and devotion. It's shown through action and through our devotion. And that is what God desires of us. He desires wholehearted devotion in all-consuming love. Again, just look at the text here. Look at the repetition of this word, all. You shall love the Lord your God with what? Some? (laughs) That's a pretty heavy word, though, isn't it? All your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the idea here is you're to love God with all of you, with all of you. Now, now it's interesting. I was reading through the commentaries, and there's a lot of discussion on what these terms heart, soul, and might signify. Um, There's a lot of debate, but typically in the Hebrew literature, the heart is the seat of the intellect and the emotions and the will. Uh, the soul is the invisible and destructible part of the individual, the essence of the individual. And the term might or, or strength referred to your, your physical being with all of its functions and capacities. But here's the thing. As you study this, trying to draw a hard and fast line between these terms, these categories, isn't easy. There's a lot of nuances in the way that the Hebrews use these terms, especially when it comes to heart and soul. So I think commentator James Brooke nails it when he writes, listen to this. He says, the piling up of terms heart, soul, and might is just a way of saying with your whole being. With your whole being. In other words, trying to, trying to parse out all of these terms and put them in these, these categories misses the point. Moses and Jesus are simply making the point, love God with your whole person. It is an all-consuming, a fully devoted love. That's what God desires of us. He desires us to delight in him, to be devoted to him, to love him as he has loved us. That, that's the beginning of Jesus' response to the scribe's great question. Now, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll explore this further, looking at the rest of Jesus' answer and the rest of his conversation with the scribe. But as I close, I just want to help you apply this, this great commandment, the greatest commandment. I want to help you apply this to your life. And so real quick, just want to mention four things, really quick. First one is this. How do we apply this? First one 
understand that this is what God desires of you. This is what God desires of you. You may have 150 things running through your mind, right? Or or maybe 613 things running through your mind. But this, brothers and sisters, is the one essential. This is it. This is what God desires of you. God desires your whole heart, your full devotion to him. He desires your love. He doesn't need it, but he desires your love. He made you, and he made you to love him. He made you to love him. It is as simple and as profound as that. Jesus in Mark 12 gives us the clarifying answer to the purpose of our lives. Why are we here, right? We're here to love God. We're here to love God. That's what we're called to. So that's the first thing. Really grab a hold of this. Understand, this is what God desires of you. Here's a second application. This is going to be a little harder, okay? Ready for this? Second, we need to confess our failure in this purpose. We need to confess our failure in this purpose. When we hear Jesus say that this is what God desires of us, we need to confess, every single one of us, that we fail. We fail to love God with our whole being. Amen? We fail. We fail to be fully devoted to him. We have these these divided hearts, right? We have these divided hearts, hearts that are bent on our own ways, bent on, on, on love of self instead of love of God. So we need to confess. We need to confess that failure, that sin, and here's the thing, let it lead us to the cross. We need to confess that failure and let it lead us to the cross. You see, beloved, this is part of the way the law works. This is the way the law works. What's the greatest commandment? What's the summary of the law? Here's the law, and here's the way it works. God's commandments come, and they expose our sin. They expose our failure to honor God and to love him as he has loved us. There's a temptation to go, hey, I'm doing pretty good, right? And then Jesus says, here's the purpose of life. And you say, oh, that word all, man, that hits hard. And I fail. And I don't love God that way. There's lots of times I'm making decisions because it's what? I want, you know? So the law comes along and it reveals our unrighteousness. It shows us that we fail. But praise God, then the gospel comes along and calls us to do what? Not just do better. It calls us to find our righteousness in another. Amen? It calls us to find our righteousness in another. Jesus Christ fully obeyed the greatest commandment. Amen? He fully obeyed. He loved God. He was fully devoted to God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength. His devotion never wavered for one moment. Really think about that. Not one moment. It was never divided. Jesus obeyed the heart of the law, the greatest commandment, perfectly every moment of his life. And he obeyed it. Please mark this down. For you and for me. He obeyed it for you and for me. He obeyed it for all those who will confess that they have failed to obey this commandment. He obeyed it for whoever would confess that they have failed and then look to Jesus as their Savior. Jesus lived the sinless life we fail to live, amen? And he died the death our undevoted hearts deserve. He died the death we deserved. He paid the price for our sins, and by faith in him, his righteousness, praise God, is credited to our account. Amen? We're justified by faith in him. So second application, confess your failure. Confess your undevoted heart, and let it lead you to Christ. Third, let this commandment be your path going forward. Let it be your path going forward. As Christians, we are not to be those who wallow in our failure. Amen? 
We're not to be those who wallow in our faith. We are saved by grace, but sometimes it's a temptation to just kind of hang out there and look at how much we fail instead of move forward, right? We are saved by grace, and that same grace of God empowers us to live differently, amen? Not perfectly, not till we get to glory, but live differently. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? Remember this? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Ephesians 2, 10. You remember this? For we Christians, we who, are, who have been born again, are his workmanship. We're his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for what? To sit around and navel gaze? No. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Over in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Paul says this. Listen to this. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. We have the Spirit of God indwelling us, enabling us to love, so we do what? This isn't rocket science, brothers and sisters. We love. We have the Holy Spirit enabling us to love, so we do what? We love. We love God. As Christians, as those who've been born again, as those who are new, as those who are the workmanship of God, as those who have the spirit of God, we live differently. We embrace and we pursue what Jesus says is the most important. And last thing, brothers and sisters, and I hope this is very practical for you, this last application point. Let me encourage you to let your love for God rise up from knowing him. Let your love for God rise up from knowing him. Just, just like with the Shema, where knowing God came before the command to love God. Let your love for God rise up from knowing him. If you find, and, and we go through these seasons, if you find your love's growing cold, you know, you're struggling with devotion, with obedience, with worship of God, spend some time really focusing on who he is. Spend some time really focusing on who he is. Remember, he is your creator. He is the creator of all things. So, so go take in a sunset, you know? Boy, we get so distracted with all of our technology, right? We miss the glory around us, right? So go take in a sunset. Go, go behold the mountains. Go look at the stars. Go stand on the shore of the ocean and just realize he made it all. He made it all. He is the creator of all of it. And he made you. He didn't just make you. Ready for this? He loves you. I mean, when I stand before the ocean, it just overwhelms me. The might, the majesty of God. And the one who made all of that cares about little insignificant Ryan. You know, just let that overwhelm you. He loves you. He's not just your creator. He is your savior. He sent his own son to die for you. So let me encourage you. Go spend some time in Isaiah 53 just thinking through the sacrifice of Christ. Or go read through the book of Romans. The whole book of Romans, right? Yes, the whole book of Romans. Do it this afternoon. And just look at the glorious salvation God has given you. Go read through Ephesians and rejoice in the way God sustains you by giving you his spirit and placing you into the body of Christ. The whole book of Ephesians. Yes, the whole book of Ephesians. Only a few chapters. Go read through the book of Ephesians. Go soak in the truth. Remember this in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes this. God's divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Not just a few things, but all things. There isn't one thing that you need that you lack. Not one thing. 
He has provided everything you need to sustain you. And if your kindling brothers and sisters is still wet, go to the book of Revelation, go to chapter 21 and chapter 22, and look at its beautiful description of the life that is to come, and let that be the flame that fuels your love for God. It's all yours, not because you deserve it, but because Jesus Christ purchased it for you. Brothers and sisters, let your love for God by the power of the Holy Spirit, rise up from your knowledge of God. Let your devotion, your obedience, your worship rise up from that. Brothers and sisters, we have, we have a whole world and, and a whole book filled with the greatness and the glory of God. And it all declares he is worthy to be our everything. Amen? Worthy to be our everything. So let's not overcomplicate it, brothers and sisters. It's not about a list of 613 rules and regulations. Instead, it is about loving the God who has so wonderfully and graciously loved us. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, I I thank you for that moment with this scribe, with this guy who came different from the others, not looking to challenge, not looking to argue or try to trick or trap you. But he had an honest question. He was burdened and overwhelmed by the situation of life, by all the 613 rules and regulations. And I thank you for all that went into his life leading him up to asking you that question. And I thank you for your glorious answer of that question. I thank you that you have not overcomplicated things for us. Thank you that you made it clear we are called to be fully devoted to the God who makes, made us and loves us. So I pray for your people today. I pray that by the knowledge of you, the things that we talked about today, the things that they will read in your word this week, that you would fuel that fire in them that burns with love and devotion for you. And I pray for anyone who may be here today that or they came to that spot and go, I haven't loved. If that's what I'm created for, I haven't loved God. With my, my life is about me. Help them to see the reality that they are living contrary to you. They are living in rebellion against heaven. And judgment is coming for that. But help them also to understand that because of the love and the mercy and the grace of God, there is a salvation provided that you, Jesus Christ, are the Lord and the Savior that you need, and you can rescue them from their sin. You can rescue them from their failure, from the judgment that is due, and give them life, glorious, eternal life, a life filled with the love of God. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this Lord's Day, together with brothers and sisters, singing your praises and being under the teaching of your word. And we love you. Amen.